Hey guys, just because we'll be taking a break after this episode, that doesn't mean we don't want to hear from you. You can always write to us at phantomspacefunhouse at gmail.com. And in the meantime, you can also check out Bill the Fly, a dark humor novella I wrote a few years ago that will be free on Kindle this coming Monday through Friday, the 9th through the 13th of October. If you're a fan of the show, it'll be right up your alley. And thanks again for giving Phantom Space Funhouse a try. Stay subscribed, and we'll be back again before you know it. And now, the season finale, Old Moon. gas giant GG423 lies on the border of the labeled, analyzed, and loosely colonized quarter worlds and the black emptiness of unexplored space the companies have deemed the Lonely Star District. Here the stars are few and far between, leaving astronomers left to wonder what fills the vast voids of nothingness. Never short in funding, Project Greeting was established to answer that very question. Many said it was the biggest undertaking the company had tried since leaving the core worlds, and news outlets ran detailed stories with pictures of men, women, and professional lab coats, calibrating equipment or checking data. Their goal was to put forward the unfaltering notion that Aerodyne Corporation would take care of the many sons and daughters who signed up in search of fame and glory. Aerodyne always rolled out the red carpet to diplomats, and always force-fed the news outlet statistics telling how their plan was absolutely foolproof. But I had worked for the company a long time, and I knew better. I knew that the enormous EC-12s they had outfitted for travel had a history of instantaneous depressurization, and that many good men and women had succumbed to the vacuum of space only a few light years from their departure zone. I also knew that, under pressure by the Senate, Aerodyne had fast-tracked new recruits into crucial operational positions that decade-long veterans would be frazzled to perform. Project Greeting was a cut-and-paste job, taken from field manuals and performance evaluations from before even the Saturn rebellions. That was how Aerodyne always worked, so I wasn't exactly thrilled when they asked me to be the operations supervisor of FS-423, a fuel station they had constructed to orbit GG-423 and support the new influx of explorer craft heading into the Lonely Star District. Meet your crew, Chairman Griswold said as he led me onto the tarmac of Unity the company's largest mobile command center. It was never very mobile, and always remained firmly fixed in the skies above Manhattan, doubtlessly as a testament to the company's perceived notions of glory. Pleasure to meet you, sir, a pimply-faced red-headed kid said as he enthusiastically took my hand. The badge on his shirt read, Kev Green. I nodded and took a few steps backward. None of the other recruits offered me greeting, but I didn't want it. They all looked fresh off the hydro farms was never a good sign. I smiled as politely as I could and took Griswold by the shoulder. His feet resisted at first, but I soon led him underneath the wing of an FC-2 where I knew we wouldn't be heard by the beaming, expectant faces a few steps away. Is this a joke? I asked. What are you talking about? He smirked, his silk tie flopping wildly as the thrusters from a DC-4, freshly unburdened of its cargo, ignited and sent the craft shooting up through the clouds. You know what I'm talking about, I said. I bet the ink on these kids' contracts is still wet. I can't do anything with them. You won't have to do anything, Mac, Griswold shouted over the thrusters. 
The station's completely automated, and really, your job is just babysitting as long as everything runs like it should. We just need to supply you with a skeleton crew, just enough to manually operate the station should the automated system fail. I just don't like it, I said. There wasn't anyone more experienced. Mac, your job is to eat, drink, play cards, and make sure no one hits the self-destruct button. Is there a self-destruct button? I asked. Griswold laughed his high, tinny laugh. Jesus, man, you've got to relax. Most guys would kill for this job. Pays good, works minimal, and you're light years away from civilization. Over the next few days aboard Unity, I got to know my crew. First, there was the pimply-faced ginger I already knew as Kev Green. I didn't realize it initially, but he was to be my second, which explained his enthusiastic greeting out on the tarmac. He kept mostly to himself and his personal utility device. I didn't know what was so engaging about the thing, but he fiddled with it for hours. Next there was Eli Ferguson, a kid who talked too much and worked too little. He spent most of his time with Audrey Hera, a pretty girl with freckles and a quiet voice who wanted nothing to do with him. There were two larger men, their hair cut close to the scalp, who laughed loudly at each other's jokes. They reminded me of military recruits, and it wasn't surprising to me when I learned they had gotten kicked out of the Corps for disorderly conduct. Their names were Harry Clinter and Jacob Vera. I didn't figure out which was which, and I deemed it unimportant. They were practically the same person anyhow. Save for Kev, they all had the same title. Independent Contractor. I had no idea what skill sets they possessed, and I doubted the company did either. As far as Aerodyne was concerned, they were just asses to fill seats. I was the biggest one. Our briefing by the company was short, and basically only covered how to read and search the field manuals they provided us. FS-423 is a state-of-the-art, self-sufficient fueling station designed to service primarily exploratory craft operating the Lonely Star region. A thin man who exuded pompousness began, gesticulating wildly at the hollow screen as it weaved in and out, broadcasting a large, glowing representation of an enormous gas giant. The station is powered from the sulfur and hydrogenous-based gases of GG423, distilling them into fuel, which then powers both the facility and, by extension, the craft in the region. I cannot emphasize enough how important your roles here are, Griswold said, standing up from his chair at the front of the room. He then went on with the same boring speech he gave before every assignment. I was falling asleep, but I looked around the youths in my charge and saw them riveted, their faces glowing with expectation. I wondered if I had been like them when I first signed on with Aerodyne. It was difficult to imagine. There was clapping and everyone was standing up as Griswold bowed like an idiot. We went off to a small room and suited up for travel as the last of the DC-4s that had carried our supplies flew off a tarmac. I could see the faces of the kids begin to darken somewhat. Have you ever been off planet? I asked Kev as we swallowed our stabilization pills. No, he responded. I thought I heard a waver in his voice. Yep, shitloads of times, either Clint or Rivera said. The other gave him a high five and slapped him on the back of the head. Saturn a few times, Neptune. We were stationed on Venus for a little bit. Crazy times. Kev pulled a sleeping frock up over his head, and I reached for mine and said, Well, I think you'll find the core sectors are far different than the outer ones. How so? Audrey asked, double-checking the adjustment strap on her frock. 
It's just different, I mumbled, regretting the decision to pursue this topic of discussion. I don't know. Y you'll see. Well, of course it's different, Eli laughed. There are people in the core worlds. Out there it'll just be us. Just swinging around that huge empty planet for three years. When he said the words, they had a heavier sound than when I had read them in the fine print on my contract. Three years was a long time, and I hadn't taken an assignment lasting that long since my twenties. I don't think most guys my age did. Most guys were already up in their sky-rise offices, watching taxi cabs zoom outside their windows by the time they got to be as old as I was. Somehow, I guess I got left behind. You guys and gals ready? Griswold said peeking his head through the half-open door of the dressing room. The PTC is just about ready. PTCs, or personal transport craft, aren't what families take on summer vacations to Mars. They're high-velocity, expensive as all hell, and designed to travel parsecs past the core worlds in a relatively short amount of time. People just plain aren't designed to go that fast, and when they were first introduced, Engineers and scientists were having a hard time keeping occupant's head from exploding. That was decades ago, however. Suspended animation has solved most of the problems. There's still the occasional death, though, so climbing inside that tiny SA tube is always a little frightening. That's why we take our stabilization caplets and wear our frocks. They help, but it always just comes down to if the universe wants to fuck you or not. She can be fickle. We left the dressing room and walked out onto the tarmac with the buzz of thrusters and the smell of fuel hanging heavy in the air. As we mounted the ramp up into the craft, Griswold shook hands with the newbies before they disappeared inside. When he got to me, he gave me a firm slap on the back. The cameras flashed, reporters shouted their questions, and the hatch closed behind us. It was dark, but only for a second before the interior light shone a dull green flashing along the floor to our individual stasis chambers. An engineer's face shone on the hollow screen on the wall. Your journey will take approximately four months and 21 days, he said mechanically. Please climb inside your designated suspended animation tubes. His eyes darted about the small room until each of us was lying down inside the thin glass cylinders. Please keep your arms and legs inside. I'm closing the tubes now, he said. I fidgeted in my spot to get comfortable, even though I knew there was no need. My body would be spending the next four months in the exact position it was in when the gas hit me. Have a good sleep, the engineer's voice rattled from the tiny speakers on either side of my head. Distributing gas in three, two, one. Some say hypersleep is just like regular sleep. You dream, you enter REM cycles, and you wake up not having any memory of the time that has passed. For me, it's like a prolonged nap in a shuttle bus. You sleep, but uncomfortably, and you're always more tired when you wake up than you were when you went to bed. It doesn't help that the gas makes my sinuses clogged for a good week after I wake up, and that my legs atrophy to the point where I can barely walk. The stabilization pill is supposed to keep your body strong and intact through travel, but it always seems to make an exception for me. It was no surprise to me when these familiar sensations hit, accompanied by the shrill voice of Griswold blaring into my ear. Let's go, let's go, he said as the hydraulic clamshell doors of the cylinder hissed and rose. I think you lazy bums have rested long enough. 
I pulled myself up out of the tube and stumbled onto the cold metal floor, pulling my frock off my head and shoulders. Careful, Mac. You know how you get after hypersleep. Griswold's face laughed from the hollow screen on the wall. Shove it, Griswold, I replied as I got used to my feet again. You're a bajillion miles away. I don't have to listen to your shit anymore. Holy hell, I heard Eli shout from across the room. I feel great. What was with all those disclaimers and liability write-offs? I heard a groan come from one of the meathead's tubes, and I smiled when I realized his experience hadn't been as pleasant. When we had all exited the tubes and removed our frocks, Griswold, who had, up to this point, only made snide comments, broke into his post-hypersleep spiel. I stood close by the door, waiting for him to remotely open it so I could eat something. My stomach was churning. For many of you, I'm sure this is your first time traveling via hypersleep, he began. Aerodyne recommends that you spend the next 72 hours in service to your body. Please make use of the provided gym inside FS423 in order to build your strength and stamina, and do not skip any meals. Your mission parameters are laid out in your field manuals in your respective rooms aboard the station. The door from the PTC slid open, and we entered the fuel station's private service landing bay. As I walked through its vast emptiness, it was strange to think that I was so far from home. It looked a lot like everything else Iridine built, a huge cavernous metal structure. The station proper was not much different, save that it contained living amenities, most importantly a modest kitchen with a food replicator. It was one of the newer models, and I eagerly punched in the code for a cheeseburger and fries and sat at the table while the kids wandered. The station had six bedrooms one for each of the staff. It also had a common room with a large table and empty metal cabinets, a main control room, and expansive gym. Most surprising to me was the huge observational window in the common room that looked out at the enormity of GG423. It was quite unlucky her dying to deviate from their utilitarian principles and give their workers a view. Of course, below the main living room were miles of service tunnels that ran under and along the pipes and tubes that formed the mechanical infrastructure of the station. With any luck, we wouldn't have to mess with any of that. For those first few days, the engineers would check in on us through the hollow screens and remind us to eat our vegetables, get plenty of exercise, stay hydrated, and spout out other waste-of-time public service announcements. After a while, they stopped. And about that time, Griswold called me on my PUD. I went into the control room to take the call, which was just about the only place on the floor where I could get some privacy and quiet. The kids had their run of the place. Well, Mac, I'm handing her over to you, he said. I thought I already had her, I answered. You did, but I'm letting you know that our correspondence will be few and far between from now on. That's the worst, I smirked. Seriously, Harkler, he said. You never use my last name. You need to get your shit together. Now, I'm going to walk you through how to start the automated process that will run the station. I knew how to work a fucking control panel, but he treated me like a child. I had never met another man that could one moment be a friend, another a pompous asshole who needs his teeth kicked in. Grizzle was starting to show the latter quality much more often. I followed his instructions and heard the entire complex hum and grind to life. The kids outside cheered. Congratulations, Mac, Griswold smirked from the viewer in my hand. You're the king of fuel station 423. The kids quieted down after only a few days, like I knew they would. 
After a while, even the idea of being in deep, unexplored space fails to hold you. The station simply turns into a room, and your once exciting assignment transforms into a job. Our job wouldn't even require anything of us until a few months, when the first EC-12s pass through. And even then, we just have to clear them for docking and push a button to begin the fueling process. My only daily task was to check the distillery levels, and I always found that they were right on schedule. We were performing our job perfectly. I spent a lot of time in front of the observational window in the common area, watching 423's enormous orange mass swirl endlessly for hours. A lot of the time, Kev would come in and sit at the table, fiddle with his PUD for a bit, and watch with me. We never said anything, but there was a mutual respect that grew between us simply from the silent observance of that enormous glowing orb. Eli and Audrey took to playing cards in her room, and their bickering frequently echoed down the long metallic hallways of the station. You're a cheater, Audrey would inevitably declare. What are you talking about? Eli would respond. You're slipping cards from under the table. Jesus, Eli, it's like just a casual game. I'm not cheating, I'm just good, he'd say. This altercation would eventually lead to Audrey storming out of the room, her boots clacking loudly up and down the hall as she paced furiously outside the door. Eli would come out and the two of them would talk quietly amongst themselves. They'd smile and hug and go back inside to finish the game. I guess they were getting close. The ex-military guys spent most of their time in the gym, and usually only associated with each other. Despite the laughter I'd hear from them, they seemed to be having the hardest time aboard the station. They spent a lot of time alone in their rooms, and were constantly raiding the kitchen cabinets for whiskey. I only know because I drank a lot myself. I always did when I was on assignment. It keeps you away from the depressing, lonely thoughts the deep blackness of space plants in your mind. I had my whiskey at the table in the common room, Kev sitting silently beside me, both of us staring out the window at 423 and trying not to think too much. On one such occasion, after having my third or fourth glass, I looked up at Kev and said, are you just going to sit there and fiddle with that thing, or do you want a drink? Oh, sorry. Yes, sir, he said. I got up from my seat, fetched a glass, and poured him a generous helping. You know, you don't have to be so jumpy, I said as I carried the glass back to the table. I'm not much for formality. I'm sorry, sir. I'll do better, Kid responded. I think that whiskey will help, I smiled. He drank it quickly, and we both returned to our silent reflection. The drink went to my head, and I began to nod off in my chair. I shot awake when he jumped from his seat and pointed into the observation window. Holy shit, there it is, he shouted. I turned toward the window and noticed a small black dot slowly protruding from behind 423's enormity. I can't believe it, Kev shouted. I had never seen him show such emotion. It's the mother moon. The what? I asked, squinting my eyes at the black dot. Well, its official name is M423, but it's commonly known as the Mother Moon because it's the oldest thing we know in existence, Kev said, his mouth moving rapidly. Some have hypothesized that all life originated there. I haven't heard anything like that, I said. I hadn't. It was all we talked about in the geology program at Central University. When it was first discovered, they did core samples and found sediment that predates anything else by billions of years. The thing was tiny and I had a hard time believing that anyone could put much significance in it. 
They found all that in 423's moon? I asked. It wasn't always a moon, he explained as he walked closer to the window. People think it used to be a free-floating asteroid, but that it got picked up by 423's gravitational pull. There was a brief pause as we stared at the tiny black dot. Then Kev suddenly said, Its orbit takes decades. It's amazing that we're here to even see a piece of it. You're really into this stuff, I said. Yeah, Kev admitted bashfully. I wanted to go into Aerodyne's science division, but they didn't have any openings. I figured at least with this, I'm getting my feet wet. He smiled as I patted him on the shoulder and wandered back down to my room. The whiskey was still coursing through my blood, and I needed a nap. A few days after, and the common area had become the central hub of the station. Even the meatheads were astounded by the seldom-seen moon's slow but determined path across the face of our orange gas giant. Audrey and Eli had moved their cards onto the table, and the meatheads had converted a corner of the room into their gym. As for Kevin and I, we would sit in a corner and talk quietly amongst ourselves while we sipped our whiskey. The moon had a strange pull on all of us, and each found it comforting in their own way. For me, it seemed like a warm blanket, like the one my mother had given me as a child. It had been embroidered with a blue sailboat, and I had carried it around with me until as late as my eighth birthday. It reminds me of an invisible friend I had growing up, Kev blurted out one day while we sat watching. Is that weird? No, lots of kids have them, I said. I don't know. I called him Marcus, he laughed, but his merriment soon faded into silent contemplation. I haven't thought about him in years. Not since I was a kid. But staring out at the Mother Moon brings back all the old feelings. It's weird. I laughed and replied, you'd be surprised what weird thoughts you think up while you're up here. Most of the time, they're the only things to keep you company. He smiled, but his melancholy stayed. Weeks went by, but the arrival of the EC-12 still seemed ages away. I was retrieving a taco from the replicator, dreading fake food's distinctive sandy taste, when I heard one of the meatheads shout, God damn it, can someone stop that pounding? I let the commotion slide until I heard weight slam down into their stand united with Clinter's, Fuck! I know you can hear me! Knock it off! What the hell is wrong, Clinter? I shouted in between bites, so firmly fixed to my seat. Stop that damned pounding, came his herald reply. With a sigh, I left my meal and walked to the common room. Clinter was alone, grunting like a wild man and slamming barbells into the ground. They resonated upon the metal floor with a shrill shriek. God damn it, calm down, I shouted, running to his side before he had a chance to slam another. There were already huge rivets in the floor. I grabbed his arm, but he writhed out of my grasp. Then make whoever the hell is making that noise stop. He huffed, sweat pouring from his body. What noise? I asked. We stood quietly in that room a long time, and the rest of the crew slowly filed in to see what the commotion was. There was not a sound on the entire station, save the low churning of the distillers beneath. Don't you hear it? He shouted. There's nothing, Audrey stated. Don't you go telling me I'm hearing things, bitch! He spat, anger and stung pride burning in his eyes. Don't you go call me a bitch, Audrey screamed. She moved in to slap him hard in the face, but I pushed her back. Everyone needs to calm the hell down, I said, turning to Clinter. Why don't you go lie down? It's not easy up here. I don't need to rest, he said. I need people to stop all the goddamn pounding. 
Look around you, Harry, I shouted, and his eyes passed from face to face. Everyone's here! No one's making any noise! I still hear it, he said through gritted teeth. His face grimaced. Just go lie down, I said, and he nodded and walked from the room. We stood there for a while, listening to his heavy steps echo down the hall. What was all that about? Eli asked. Space does shit to you, I said before walking back into the kitchen. My meal was cold by that time, but I didn't bother reheating it. I could practically feel the cruiser's gaze boring a hole through my head. They were newbies, and they looked to an older, more experienced contractor for answers. I didn't have any to give, but I didn't want to tell them that. So I opened up the cabinet and went for the whiskey. For a few days after his outburst in the common area, we didn't see much of Clinter. When he finally emerged from his room, he seemed a changed man. He was timid, incredibly timid, and he seemed to run past the doors leading from the hall into the common area with his eyes low to the ground. I could feel the cruise's growing concern hanging in the air, but I wasn't too worried. I had seen plenty of strong men break while on assignment, and they usually bounced back after a couple of weeks of solid ground. As time passed, I saw Kev grow more and more into his role as second man. He didn't tolerate Vera leaving his weights all around the station, and he frequently mediated Eli and Audrey's nearly incessant bickering. I showed him how to check the distillery levels, and he was a quick learner, performing the task every day like clockwork. I came to rely on him a lot, and we grew close. We were sitting in our usual spot in the common area when he scrunched his eyebrows and said quietly, almost to himself, That's strange. What's strange? I asked. The Mother Moon's orbit. It's way faster than it should be, right? He said, then began speaking rapidly. I mean, it takes decades to clear even one side of 423. I feel like it's almost rounded a quarter of this side in the only time we've been here. I stared at the black orb and realized he was right. What had once been a tiny speck against the planet's surface now could be seen in great detail as the moon moved farther down its orbit and closer to the station. Its surface was black as pitch, and pockmarked with craters. It was strange to think that it had ever been difficult to see. I don't get it, Kev stammered. I was surprised how nervous he was becoming. They've tracked M423 for hundreds of years, even before the soil analysis. Not once has it shown a break in its orbital pattern, not once in all that time. Maybe they were wrong, I said. I've seen the studies, he answered. I wrote my senior thesis on the factors making up the moon's orbit. Well, looks like you wrote a shitty thesis, I said as I took another sip of whiskey. It's definitely closer than it was before. Kev didn't answer, but sat in silence with his thumb and forefinger supporting his chin, staring at the moon that inexplicably altered its orbit and moved closer to the station. As with every aerodyne assignment, something always breaks. This time it was the seal on the primary intake valve that regulated the amount of gas the station took in from 423's atmosphere. I wasn't too surprised. I knew that Griswold's confidence was usually founded on bullshit. Maintenance required, the automated system chirped over the station's speakers every 20 seconds. It would continue to do so until someone had logged into one of the compression suits and opened the sublevel airlock. It was how the company ensured we did our jobs. It was an unfortunate break. 
If it had been anything but the intake valve, we could have fixed it from the service tunnels beneath the main deck without having to go outside. I hated putting on those clunky compression suits. You're sure you don't mind going? Kev asked me as I zipped up the chest of my suit and put in my identification number. Everyone was there, watching me. Doubtlessly, the kids wanted to see what going out in airlock was like. I told you, I've got the first one, I said. You can get the next because, believe me, I don't want to have to do this more than once. Sounds like a deal, Kev smiled. He joined the others at the tiny window next to the airlock controls and sealed the door behind him. I gave him a nod, gripped the new valve liner tightly, and magnetized my boots while he opened the airlock that led outside. I could feel the artificial atmosphere of the foyer shoot out from all sides of me into the vacuum of space. I shouldered my thruster pack and demagnetized my boots. The first bout of weightlessness is always the strangest, and for a few minutes, I floated helplessly in the now open foyer until I gathered my bearings. I saw the kids' faces beaming at me from the window. Even Clinter was smiling. I decided that I had to put on a good show and performed a series of corkscrews. The delight on their faces was worth the slight nausea I felt afterward. I realized I was a much older man. When I had stabilized, I waved goodbye and ignited my thruster pack in short, intermittent bursts, maneuvering into the black space beyond. I kept close to the station, not wanting to risk getting pulled in by 423. The moon almost blended in with the blackness of space, and I could really only make out its figure when the gas storms on 423 erupted an enormous display of fire. Turning my back to it to descend down toward the distillery piping gave me a queer feeling, and I found myself constantly looking back over my shoulder to see it hanging motionless in darkness. It was a long descent, but I eventually reached the beginning of the main intake pipe. Most of its mass shot down vertically, but I made a quick 90 degree turn just before it reached the distillery apparatuses that rested a few maintenance levels beneath the living deck. Banking on the accuracy of the field manual, I judged that the valve was about midway up the vertical portion, about 75 feet from the turn. I'm shutting them down, Kev said through my earpiece, and the bright orange and pink gases that had previously flown up the intake tube slowly filtered down and out into space. You're all set. Roger that, I said. It was an antiquated phrase, and I was sure that the kids were laughing in the control room. I began my ascent up the intake tube slowly using short bursts from my thruster pack. When a considerable amount of tube had passed in front of me, I magnetized my boots and slammed down hard on the walls of the pipe so that I was standing upright and perpendicular to it. I switched on my head beams and their light flew throughout the cylinder as I moved steadily forward. Kev's voice faded in and out, interrupted by heavy static. I wasn't sure if he was actually trying to contact me or if the communicator was malfunctioning. But either way, the sound was terribly piercing, so I shut it off. After about 15 minutes, the light fell on the metallic gleam of the damaged valve. It was closed, and I used the lever on its side to manually open it. I took out my utility peg and cut off the old liner around the edge of the valve, and then used the injector to apply epoxy around the rim and attach the new one. I opened and closed the valve several times to make sure the liner seal was tight. While I opened it for the second time, I noticed a figure off in the distance walking slowly up the wall of the tube towards the bend at the top. He was in a compression suit that looked very similar to mine, 
but he moved in a strange way I, I, I can't explain. The sight startled me, and I turned back on my communicator. Kev, is everyone up there with you? I asked. Only the crackling of static. Anybody there? I repeated. I thought I heard a voice cut through, but the static completely drowned them out. Clinter? Kev? Audrey? Is anybody there? I need to know if anyone followed me up the intake tube. Still, only static. I watched the strange figure grow smaller and smaller before turning the sharp corner at the top and disappearing from sight. I switched my communicator to vicinity and climbed through the open valve. Hello, this is Mac Harkler, Operations Supervisor of FS-423 under the command of Iridine Corporation, I said. State your name and purpose for being in this restricted area immediately. The words sounded so stupid as they echoed inside my helmet. It could only be one of the crew members. No one else could be out here in the middle of nowhere. Once I went back inside, I'm sure they'd all be laughing at me. I could practically hear Eli's mocking tone saying, State your name and purpose for being in this restricted area immediately, mimicking one of the service androids at the resorts on Venus. Evidently, whoever was climbing around the intake tube hadn't considered my official tone very serious either, for my comm received nothing. I demagnetized my boots and used my thruster pack to shoot to the top of the bend. When I had reached it, I could see the tiny metallic white hint of a compressor suit make a sharp left with the pipe and elude me again. I magnetized my boots and went after it. Stop! I shouted into my comm, but no one returned my cry. After making the left bend, I was met with the door of the pressurization chamber, where the gas from the planet below was compressed into usable liquid fuel. It was cool to the touch, and the maintenance light above the door glowed a dull green, signifying that the chamber was inactive. I had seen him climb inside, and there was no other place the intruder could go. Whoever it was, they would be standing just beyond the door, and they would be receiving a lecture. I flung the door open and stepped inside while my headbeams inexplicably went out. While I was groping the dark for their switch on my suit, I heard the door behind me slam closed. I lunged against its metal frame, but it wouldn't budge. I switched my communicator to the direct line. The door to the pressurization chamber is locked closed on me, Kev, I said. I need you to open it. There came no answer but static from the control room. I thought I saw something moving out of the corner of my eye. I turned around quickly, my heart beating wildly. This isn't funny anymore, I said in vicinity. We need to get out of here. I found the switch to my head beams and they illuminated the chamber in one quick blinding burst of light. When my eyes had adjusted, I realized I was alone and staring only at cold metal walls. Several thoughts ran through my head, but I wasn't able to make sense of any of them. I felt the dull rumblings of machinery churning to life, and I knew that my priority had to be escape. Hello? Hello! I screamed to the control room. The pressurization chamber is firing back up! I'm still in here! The static served as an audible companion to the terror that began coursing through my body as the pressure sensors on my suit fluctuated wildly. I hadn't felt it yet, but I knew that I would soon, and soon after that I'd be pumped throughout the station in the form of human jelly. God damn it! Somebody answer me! I screamed. The sensation was coming now. It started as an intense pushing of my chest but it soon spread to my neck and limbs. It required all my strength to shout into my comm, SOMEBODY OPEN THE GODDAMN PRESSURE DOOR! 
I saw a thin crack begin to form in the glass of my helmet, and the door slid open. The immense force was lifted from my body, and I stumbled out of the chamber. Holy shit, Mac! Kev's voice echoed through my helmet at last. I'm so sorry about that. What the hell were you guys doing? I shouted. I would have been here, he said slowly. But there's a situation with Clinter. Audrey was the only one at the airlock to let me back inside. Her face was flushed, and her eyes were puffy. I could tell she was upset about something. How was everything, she said. Her voice clearly choked. What's wrong? I asked as I took off my compression suit. She put her hand over her mouth and led me down the hall and up the stairs to the living deck. Lining the walls was my crew, their faces somber. Not one of them looked me in the eyes. What the hell is going on here? I said. Kev looked the most put together, and he approached me from near the kitchen, his head nodding up and down, and motioned me to follow. He led me back towards Clinton and Vara's room, but we lingered at the closed door. They wanted to clean everything up, but I wanted you to have a look first, he said. What are you talking about? I asked. It just doesn't seem right to me. I, I never, I never would have guessed. I pushed him aside and hit the button that opened the door. Hanging by a utility cord in the center of the room was the body of Harry Clinter, slowly swinging in a circular motion by his neck, white all over, and bruises covering his head and arms. Shortly after you left, he started babbling about the pounding, Kev said as he followed me slowly into the room. He got violent and shoved Audrey against the wall when she tried to calm him down. I stared dumbfounded at Clinter's horrible grimace, frozen. It was my fault, Mac. I ordered them to lock him in his room. I would have had it search for implements if I had never thought, it's fine, I said. It was the only thing that came to me. We couldn't keep the body around. Any chance of disease aboard a highly environmentally sensitive, self-contained station could be disastrous. So we did the only thing we could. We wrapped him in the sheets from his bed and sent him out the airlock. Vera sent a bottle of whiskey and a barbell out with him. His body lurched and contorted horribly as he was sucked out the huge airlock doors, but he looked peaceful after, and we watched him float through space around the station, silhouetted by 423. I called Grissom on my PUD shortly after, and he immediately read the exhaustion on my face. Jesus, Mac, you look awful, he laughed. Clinter killed himself, I said. Grissom made a clicking sound with his tongue. He was incapable of showing compassion was immediately dismissive. That's a real shame, he said. It's never the ones you'd think. I'd have bet my money that Green would come down with the space loonies if someone had put me up to it. You send him out the airlock, right? I nodded. Good, Mac. We can't have the station contaminated. Not with the EC-12s coming. It was the same callousness I had come to expect from the man, but I still wouldn't honor it with a response. The EC-12's arrival came closer and closer, but we dreaded the idea of cleaning the place and doing the inspections. It was all automated. All we had to do was help the computer along, but Clinter's suicide had sapped us of all our spirits. No one looked at the other. We spent most of our time in our respective rooms. Only Kev went out to the common room anymore. I didn't have the heart to. I was drowned in whiskey and regret, wondering how I didn't see the signs. My thoughts always returned to the man I had seen in the intake tube. I realized that he had just been a trick of the mind, 
but I'd never suffered from symptoms like it before. I was usually the sanest of all of them when we went out on assignment. How did the pressurization chamber suddenly fire up? The distillery had been off. I'd seen it with my own eyes. No one would have turned it back on again. I wondered if there was someone on board who had it out for me, but that was ridiculous. There was no motive. I came to accept that what had happened in the intake tube had simply been typical faulty aerodyne engineering, and what had happened to Clinter was just an example of the tragic consequences that can befall typical aerodyne contractors. Eventually, even sulking alone in my room became too tiring, and I ventured out into the common area. As soon as I sat down, Kev said blankly from the chair beside me, It's closer. I've watched it every day. It's increasing its pace. You want to report it? I asked as I poured myself a glass. Maybe you could get a plaque in the science building in Westchester. I already did, Kev said. What'd they say? They said the moon hasn't altered its rate of revolution. Ever. So it's just an optical illusion then, I said. I guess, but it would have to be a very elaborate one, Kev said. They see us on the other side of the planet right now. We shouldn't even be able to see it. I laughed and said, Typical aerodyne. I wonder sometimes whether they have to tie a string around their fingers just to remember to screw their heads on. My laughter hadn't affected Kev, who still sat in a strange, muffled state of agitation. I heard the clang of a weight hit hard on the floor, and I turned to see Vera painting in a corner of the room next to the window. He nodded his head in acknowledgement when he saw me, and walked over to the open chair opposite me at the table. How's it going? he said as he sat down and poured himself some whiskey. You're sure that's a good cool-down drink? I asked. The best there is, he said, taking a large gulp. Shit ton of electrolytes. The three of us sat quietly and listened to the rising voices that filtered out from Audrey's room. Evidently, Eli hadn't been playing very nice. My eyes were fixed on Vera, and I was curious as to how he was taking his friend's death. I watched him drink his whiskey, quickly at first but then more slowly, the movement of his arm to his mouth decreasing at the same rate as his smirk. He was becoming somber, and I guessed that he was lost in some painful memory. Suddenly, he leaned forward on the edge of his seat and said in a jarring voice, You know, I hate that thing. What thing? I asked. That moon, the mother thing. I heard you guys talking, he said, waving his glass around the air in a dismissive motion. I laughed quietly to myself and took a drink. <laughs> Why? I asked. I don't know. I just do. Audrey was shouting from her room now, and I could hear that the argument was getting heated. It reminds me of this girlfriend I had when I lived in Manassas, Ferris said with a smile. Susan was such a bitch. One time I came back from this club I had been at with Harry, and she just went on and on about God knows what. I was kind of drunk, so I really didn't pay attention. I sat on the chair and went in and out as her voice kind of pounded against my ears. I was dreaming of this girl I had seen at the club. Gorgeous girl, fine body, huge tits, she had everything, Mac. I smiled, mostly because he was staring at me, asking for a reaction. Anyways, he laughed. I was passing in and out of consciousness while she just kept yammering at me. Eventually, as I started sobering up, I began to notice how freaking annoying Susan's tiny little voice was. His words became shorter, and I could tell he was clenching his jaw. It was grating on me, and I tried to endure it. I tried a long time, but eventually I couldn't take it anymore. 
I shot up from my seat and popped her four times in the side of the face. She fell down crying and that was even more agitating. I kicked her in the ribs until she shut up. He reeled back in his seat and stared out the window with a strange smile on his lips and said, almost as an afterthought, stupid bitch. I took a deep breath and poured another drink. He sat there for several long seconds before his weird smile left. When it did, he rose quickly from his seat and walked to the corner where he kept his weights and lifted them over his head much faster than he had before. Audrey was screaming at the top of her lungs, You miserable piece of shit! over and over, so I slapped Kev on the shoulders as a sign to move. He altered his neck slightly in acknowledgement, but he didn't budge. The screams grew in volume, so I left him there and rushed down the hall towards Audrey's room. As I passed through a door, my heart pounded hard in my chest. I stopped my tracks and reeled back out into the hall. Through the open door, I saw a thick line of blood that snaked across the floor and collected in a shallow pool by the steel dresser in the corner. Audrey was standing over it, spotted with red and panting wildly like an animal. The tattered remains of what must have been Eli were slumped over the small wooden chair he usually sat in when they played cards, while her bloodied chair, displaying huge gashes in its wood, sat toppled on the ground beside her. When she noticed me, her eyes grew wild and sent terror shooting down my spine. She moved towards me in quick sporadic bursts, leaping over the table in the center of the room and sprinting towards me through the open door. My hand instinctively went for the button on the wall, and the door slid closed immediately as I typed in my overseer's code on the keypad. I heard the metal locks on the door engage as Vera ran down the hall towards me. Go get Kev, I panted as he stood there stupefied. He hurried down the hall and brought him back, and the three of us sat on the floor outside Audrey's room, saying nothing but listening to the snarls, screams, and groans of the mad woman inside. I told them what I'd seen, how Audrey had killed with nothing more than a wooden chair, and it was decided that our safest course of action was to leave her locked in there. There was no way she could break through the door, but we didn't know if she was diseased or if the disease was contagious. We had no idea what we would do with her in the long term, but we knew that she had to be contained. Our only lament was that whatever was left of Eli would be deprived of respect left there to rot in the presence of his killer. I shut down air recycling to the room so that any infection would be confined there. I wasn't sure how we were going to feed her, but she could go a few days without. Maybe starving her would sap her strength. I had no way of knowing. It was only a week until the EC-12s arrived, and Audrey's screams had stopped days before. Whether that meant my negligence in feeding her had done her in or she had simply worn herself out, I didn't know, but I didn't care to find out. As far as I was concerned, the door to her room could stay closed for the rest of our serving time. It could be a nice surprise for the next round of suckers Iridine shot up. The company would try to track me down and hold me liable, but I would be long gone. I would disappear as soon as my feet touched solid ground. Until then, I was stuck with the mind-numbing task of prepping the station for the arrival of the first exploration fleet. Mostly, that entailed running diagnostic checks with the computer, but it required mechanical work as well, because every diagnostic would undoubtedly bring up some kind of problem. This time, it was blockage in one of the fuel pipes that ran throughout the building, and it would require cutting and replacement. Are you coming down to help? I asked the back of Kev's head as he sat in his usual spot in the common room. He had grown incredibly despondent in the past few weeks. 
spending nearly all of his time staring at the large observational window. When I would join him, I would pour him a glass of whiskey and it would sit and grow warm, creating another ring upon the table from the countless times I had offered before. He barely spoke a word, but he smiled often. I wasn't surprised when he didn't answer, but the slight chuckle he gave unnerved me. Seeing that Kev wouldn't be joining us, Farrah and I went down to the surface tunnels alone. They consisted of a long walkway with access tunnels on either side. The walkway led to a staircase to the level below, which was always a mirror image of the one above it. As we descended the sixth staircase down, strands of light ran along the floor and illuminated the path forward towards the panel where we could access the clogged pipe. It was much further than I'd originally anticipated, and it seemed like hours before the light stopped outside of panel 682. So what are we doing, Susan? Ferris said when we reached the panel. What was that? I laughed. Gee, sorry, he said. I don't know why I called you that. We're going to climb in here, find the clog, and cut it out, I said. The pipe's designed to glow red when it needs maintenance, so it should be easy to spot. You want me to go in? Vera asked. I'll do it this time, I said. You can get the next. Just hand me that cutter and feed me the new tube when I need it. He nodded as I opened the hatch and climbed into the tiny access tunnel. There was barely enough room for me to crawl on my legs and forearms, and I had to straddle the gas pipe which pressed painfully against my chest and groin as I went along, lugging the cutter the entire way. After a few minutes, I spotted the glowing red luminescence of the clogged pipe up ahead in the dark. When I had reached it, I maneuvered the cutter and cut both sides of the clog, removed the pipe section, and shouted to Vera, Alright, slide the new section in! Immediately, the entire station shook violently. I was tossed against the walls of the access tunnel before it stopped, and I could feel the station begin to lift slightly to one side while the distinct pounding sound that sounded like a metallic heartbeat grew in volume. Is this Clinter's pounding? I thought. I got on my comm and called Kev. What the hell is going on up there? Silence. Kev, I'm getting sick of this. Answer me! When he failed to respond a second time, I shambled feet first back out the access hatch the way I had come. The service tunnels were dark, and the lights on the floor had totally gone out. I grabbed my utility light from my pocket and switched it on, scanning the long hallway in both directions. But Vera was gone. Hey, Jacob! I shouted, my voice ringing along the metallic walls. There was no answer. I called him on his comm, but he didn't answer there either. I was about to head up to the living deck to see what was wrong with the station when I heard footsteps clanging towards me along the floor. God damn it! What do you want, Susan? I heard him say. Though his words were slurred in almost two octaves higher than his usual voice. Jacob, let's go, I said, shining the light in the direction of his voice. As the beam hit his face, my heart beat wildly. His face was wrong, though I, I couldn't explain how. It, it reminded me of the look Audrey had given me before she had lunged for me, and it made my feet move backward without my knowledge. It's nag, nag, nag with you, Susie, isn't it? He slurred, wobbling back and forth as he stepped closer. Can you just shut up for two minutes? Jacob, you're not well, I said as I backed away. Two minutes, Susie, he shouted. I just need two minutes. Two minutes without your fat, flabby jaw going up and down. I bent down to pick up the cutter that was lying by the hatch. When I looked back up, he was only a few feet away and brandishing a thick metal rod with both hands. I'll knock that jaw right off your skull, baby. Don't doubt that I will, he said. Calm down. I'm not Susan, I yelled in reply. I said shut up he said, and swung widely. 
missing my head by mere centimeters. I hit him with the butt end of the cutter harder than the gut and he fell down on his back with a thud. Kev, Kev, I shouted frantically into my comm. You need to get down here right now. There was no reply. I told you not to be bringing your sister into this, you bitch, he said, lifting off the floor. He picked up the metal rod and swung again. It passed through the air with a whir, colliding against the wall with a shrill, metallic ring. Calm down, I yelled. He turned his awful eyes towards me again, and I lunged at him with the cutter, going at full throttle. It passed through his torso easily, and I thought I saw a faint drop of water form in the corner of one of his eyes as he collapsed on the floor. It startled me, and I fell back against the wall. Staring at the bloody mess I had created as the beating sound continued like a gong inside my head. I knew that I had been given no other choice. Kev, please answer me, I huffed into the calm. Again, there was no response. I sat in the dark and threw my hands up against my temples, digging my fingers into my skull, trying to get the incessant pounding to stop. At that moment, the station jerked violently, and I was thrown against the wall. I soon found my feet as it leveled out, and I stumbled up the first flight of stairs. Each step was more difficult than the one before, and seemed to increase the frequency of the pounding. I found myself shouting words I couldn't understand, anything to distract from the mind-sapping noise. I felt incredibly cold, and my skin felt clammy. I thought of nothing but warmth and blankets. My blanket, the one with the blue sailboat on it. Eventually the noise drowned out everything, I couldn't even hear the mechanical whir of the door to living deck open as I stumbled through. The entire deck was bathed in darkness, and shook violently. A sound broke through the pounding, quiet at first, before it grew to enormous volume. It was a shrill voice coming from the common area. Oh Marcus, we'll be seeing you soon, I heard it say. It was high and sounded inhuman. I walked into the common room and gasped at the sight before me. The mother moon consumed the entire breadth of the window, and I could see nothing but her inky black mass bearing down upon us as the station violently shook. He's coming for us, Mac, Kev squealed as he turned towards me. Marcus is coming for us! He jumped up and down, clapping his hands and squealing something I couldn't understand. I felt like my mind was running out of my ears. My eyes were fixed upon the nice warm blanket through the window, its blue sailboat sailing ever closer, smothering me. Phantom Space Funhouse is produced by Nate Gutman and Kim Scharfenberger. Old Moon was written, composed, and read by Nate Gutman. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Phantom Space Pod and leave us a five-star review in iTunes. That really helps people find us. Also, if you like the show, please consider supporting us financially through Patreon. 
In return, you'll get bonus episodes, access to episode dossiers, and our undying affection, of course. If you have questions or comments or just want to chat, you can write to us at phantomspacefunhouse at gmail.com or visit us at phantomspacefunhouse.com. And that is it for season one. From Kim and I both, we hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, please stay subscribed, though, because we'll be coming back fresh and rejuvenated for season two in a couple of months. Uh, in the meantime, talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be around and we'll be giving announcements and uh, maybe a few other goodies every once in a while. And as always, thanks for listening.